So one of these, que- I'm just going to start the questions because I think the questions will keep us busy. Uh, and um, I'm okay with that. People pay more attention when they think there's an argument happening. And so let's just start. My Bible prophecy is on the weak side, but out of all the captivities, why start at Manasseh? Weren't there other captivities before and after? How do you tell this one as the start? It's an excellent question. And I'll tell you frankly, I think that it was a little bit arbitrary in the part of William Miller. The truth is that there were captivities even in the time of the judges. And you had, well, you understand what we said. There are many captivities. I, honestly, I think Miller picked that one because that was the one that ended at the right date. It happened to me a while back that I saw, uh, I'd written a paper on this 2520, and someone responded to it, but they didn't send the response to me. They sent it to someone else. And this is okay. I mean, people can do what they want to do. But on that response, they mentioned that the date 723 B.C. shows up more than a hundred times on the pioneer CD-ROM. Now, I was thinking... I've studied this, and I only saw it one time. It was Hiramedicine. So I went and I looked again, and I found, sure enough, more than 100 times the number 723 shows up. Almost all of them are page numbers. But, <laughs> but a couple of them are to 723 A.D., and one of them is to the Roman year 723. The Roman years are neither A.D. or B.C. It's a different numbering system. And a couple of them are to addresses that had the number 723 in them. But yes, only one reference to 723 B.C. in connection with this prophecy. I think there is a little bit of arbitrary decision-making that goes into some of this connecting a prophecy. There's another question here. It says, Jubilees were not celebrated routinely how do we know their records were, were accurate, the ones noted were accurate? And I think the answer is we don't. I think God uses honestly sincere and weak people to do very important things. When we say William Miller was a man of God, we don't mean that he was a, a person who could have written a Bible commentary from Genesis to Revelation. We don't mean it. But we mean that God gave him special light on the books of Daniel and Revelation that was especially relevant to his time. And when he gets outside of that field, like the work he does with Usher's chronology, I don't think we should buy into that. I think the 6,000 year probably ended just about 14 years ago. It didn't end 170 years ago. That's that question. Can you please expand on the third woe and the teaching that the latter rain began to fall in 9-11? Did my wife get back with that computer? And it's setting up there. Thank you. If you'll just get it going, that'll be good. So I'll talk in the meantime. Uh, Ellen White wrote some very interesting statements related to God's judgments in the end of time. One of them, she wrote, involved the towers in New York. Apparently, a rumor had gone around. It's, it's, a, it's coming. Look at that. Look at that. So, don't turn it. Don't turn it. He said, don't mess with it too much. Okay. Two more questions. So, what I'm going to show you now is how to use this fancy piece of software, right? 
So I'm going to go here to full text search, and I'm going to type New York, and I'm going to type in there, oh, was it title? Let's find it. So here is what it says. Oh, but you can't read it here. Now comes the word that I have declared that New York is to be swept away by a tidal wave. This I have never said. If you've ever been on the Ellen White websites, anti-Ellen White websites, and seen a lot of the things about her, you should just know a lot of rumors went around that uh, have no basis in fact. But once Ellen White was dead, she could not refute them any longer, and so they began to multiply. This I have never said. I have said, as I looked at the great buildings going up there, story after story, what terrible scenes will take place when the Lord shall arise to shake terribly the earth. Then the words of Revelation 18, 1 to 3 will be fulfilled. The whole of the 18th chapter of Revelation is a warning of what is coming on the earth. But I have no light in particular in regard to what is coming on New York. Only I know that one day the great buildings there will be thrown down by the turning and overturning of God's power. From the light given me, I know that that destruction is in the world. One word from the Lord, one touch of his mighty power, and these massive structures will fall. What a statement, huh? And let's find if there is another one that is relevant. So I'll tell you what I understand from this passage, and then I'll tell you what some others understand. I understand that in Revelation 18, you have a description of God's judgments on Babylon. You have there a reference that says the earth is lightened with the glory of that other angel. And then it says something about Babylon, that Babylon has become the hold of every unclean and hateful bird. On Audioverse, I have a sermon called Unclean and Hateful Birds. It's, It's on this topic of how God is going to lead the false teachers into this Babylonian system. What is Ellen White saying? She's saying that when God's judgments end up coming on these buildings in New York, you're going to have a fulfillment of God's judgments on Babylon as a whole. There's another one of these statements, but I don't know if I can find it for you in good time while I'm talking, that talks about, uh, connects this with another prophecy, when God will overturn um, I'm forgetting the exact words of that of the phrase now. Some reading this have understood it to read like this, as if it said that when, oh, it's right there. Do you see where it says, when the Lord shall arise to shake terribly the earth? That phrase in the second line. That's from Isaiah, when the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth. It's a reference to the seven last plagues. It's a reference to the judgments that are coming on this world even before then that lead up to the persecution of our time. It's a reference to this business, and it's a serious thing. If there's any connection between what happened in 9-11 and this, it's that 9-11 was a forewarning of what could happen. You had two or three, I guess it was four if you count the ones down low, buildings go down. But there's plenty of buildings that are still standing And when the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth, it's going to be more significant than 3,000 lives being lost. Uh, Something more is coming. But it's this statement. I I should preach on this for a minute. 
It's just like this. It's taking statements that could be understood one or two ways, taking them one way and then taking it to its logical extreme. This is how much of this movement has been built up that these questions are referring to. You know, Ellen White talks about the latter rain. She talks about what brings the latter rain. The latter rain will not be poured out until the larger portion of God's people are doing his work. It's an issue of character. The seal of God won't be placed on anyone whose character still has a spot or a stain. And this business of trying to place the latter rain or even the judgment of the living at a certain time. Yeah. It's speculation. And that's exactly what Peter was trying to say we should avoid in First Peter when he said that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. may close on this. If you want to check this out yourself, do a study on all my writings on this, Arise to Shake Terribly. You'll pull up a number of statements that will plainly put the timing of that in the very end of verse history, after the National Sunday Law, well past that, and um, we aren't there yet. I should put down the ones I'm done with, and then we'll look at them again. So, expand on the third woe. I did. That was my sermon this morning. It was on the third woe. And what I showed in that sermon is that the third woe in Revelation 11 says nothing like the first six, the first six judgments, the first six trumpets. It's about what's going on in heaven and then God's work here on earth when he takes this earth to himself and punishes the wicked and destroys those that destroy the earth. That's what the third woe is about. It's worse than the first two. Someone asked, what is the Revelation 18 message of the other angel? So here's what you have in Revelation 18. You really have two messages, one that isn't given there in terms of its content. But remember, the angel comes down, and the the earth is lightened with his glory. And what he says is, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But the message that Babylon is fallen isn't what lightens the world. It's given by those who lighten the world, but what lightens the world is the message about Christ and his righteousness. It's the message about the seal of God and the law of God and the part it plays in this business of salvation. This message about how the commandments and, the, and grace go together, this is what lightens the earth with its glory. When the earth is lighted, that's when God takes advantage of the timing to give the call of verse 4. That's the one that says, come out of her my people. When does God expect his people to come out? Even now, many of God's people aren't leaving Babylon. It would really be dangerous for them if they did. They know they're in a corrupt organization. If they came into ours and found it equally corrupt, they might become highly discouraged or even become susceptible to join some, yeah, something. God is keeping them there until this earth is lighted with his glory, and he's going to send many people out. You know what it says? He'll send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That's what's going to fill Babylon up with, to become a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Every is a very interesting word there, as if God has already filled Babylon up with those who are being deceived. And then God is going to send his judgments on Babylon when he calls his people out. Yeah, a lot more could be said about what is the message of Revelation 18. I encourage you to spend your time studying that.
Jones's sermons from 1891, 1893, 1895 might be a good place to begin, and you'd find a whole lot there on this topic. So someone asked for a reference to what I said about the daily not being a vital issue. Let's see if we can find this. The daily and... Oh, that's too many. I don't know if it has the word issue in it. It doesn't. Vital, how about... This is it. This is First Selected Messages, page 164. It has been presented to me that this is not a subject of vital importance. I am instructed that our brethren are making a mistake in magnifying the importance of the difference in the views that are held. Now, right now, just this morning, I read an article on a website that was by the movement that I'm speaking of here today that magnified the importance of the difference between the two views. It magnified it. And what did God show Ellen White about that? It is a mistake to magnify the difference in the views that are held I cannot consent that any of my writings shall be taken as settling this matter. And yet right there in this publication was using Ellen White's writings to settle the matter as if she had said that the view that, that Conradi brought up was, came from the angels, that, the fallen angels. Really, brethren, if we're going to teach about prophecy, we could do it from the Bible alone, and this would be fine. But if we're going to use Elmite's writings to help us, we'd better use them in accordance with the counsel that she gives. How do you determine or differentiate between the seven times of Daniel 4 as literal years versus times in Daniel 7 as prophetic? Um, This is a very good question. And I would say it like this. In Daniel 7... The whole thing is couched in these symbolic figures. That's how it is couched. In Daniel chapter 4, well, there's more to it than that. Daniel 4 explains itself. Um, Here the angel explains Daniel 4. And uh, so what you have there is a man. If, If William Miller was here trying to answer this question, he would say that Nebuchadnezzar didn't live for... Uh, 2,500 years. Obviously, this has to be literal time. And on the other hand, when you're looking at the, in Daniel 7, you're talking about kingdoms and the age of persecution, and that wasn't for three and a half years. But if I'm looking for a general answer, I'd say that in Daniel 4, you have a lot of very literal storyline information. While you have the symbol of the tree, two or three verses of symbol, most of the material there is literal I'd expect it to be literal. That probably doesn't satisfy whoever asked that question because it doesn't really satisfy me very well either. I think common sense has to play a very important part in the interpretation of prophecy. That satisfies me much better. Without making different Bible versions a divisive issue, how do you prove that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity? I would say this isn't exactly on topic, but can I just give... (laughs) give a short answer to it anyway we are a temple for the Holy Spirit 
it would be idolatry to make a temple for anything that wasn't deity. One quotation by Ellen White reads something like this. There will be no more prophecies by time, by illustration, diagram, chart, picture. Do you know it? I know quite a number of statements where she talks about this idea that there will be time no longer. I know in education she says that as teachers we should use illustrations, diagrams, and charts and anything we can to illustrate our thought. But I don't exactly know this statement. Yeah, that's true. How do people defend that the third will began on 9-11 and constitutes the investigation of, or the judgment of the living? How can we have a clear, right interpretation? How do we know, study, if this is right? So maybe I'll just stop beating around the bush. You've sat here for two and a half talks, and I'll just get straight to my point. I'm really referring here to the teachings of one Mr. Jeffrey Pippinger. Uh, Jeffrey Pippinger lives about 15 miles from my house. This is what I've heard. But we've never met each other in the state of Arkansas. Um, Some of my friends who are followers or enthusiasts of Jeff Pippinger have uh, had an idea a few years ago that he and I should sit down as brethren and, and humbly study out and try to hammer out our differences and come to a right conclusion, you know. And I want to tell you, frankly, I agree with that idea. And I've offered repeatedly to sit down with Brother Pippinger and study with him, with witnesses and with a recording of what's being said. And uh, he has no interest in doing that. If you ever want to see the letters he's written to me about that, I'll show them to you. I think I want to represent him correctly. So if he was right here, what he'd say is, there's a reason. He believes I'm not an honest person. And he doesn't want to have a conversation with a dishonest person. But I think I'm an honest person. But I can't really respond to that. So the point is that there's been no opportunity for us to really sit down and, and study because it can't happen. But I have prepared a series of six documents that evaluate the methods of Jeff Pippinger. What I've said to Jeff, and what I want to say to you, is that this is not a personal issue. The issue of Bible prophecy is not an issue of trying to evaluate the character of people. It's not that you should believe me if I'm a righteous man or disbelieve me if I am a wicked man. Because the devil could have a wicked man tell you the truth, And he's very often had righteous men who were deluded. So it's not a personal issue. It's going to have to be about hermeneutics and about principles of Bible interpretation and looking. And I really think in this case, very many times, the way that Jeff has gotten to a conclusion has been by a misunderstanding of the common sense approach of the English language. It's like we talked this morning about the tenses in the statement by Ellen White. Do you remember that, talking about the tenses there and the statement about the... It's very many statements like this. Maybe you remember this morning that we read a statement that said that the last scenes are the, that are clearly revealed in Scripture are those of the papacy. That's a paraphrase of what it said. That the last scenes of the papacy are clearly revealed in Scripture. So Jeff Pippinger writes... I'm very much paraphrasing his teaching. 
that since Daniel 12.1 is the time of trouble, do we all agree with that Daniel 12.1 is the time of trouble? I agree with this. It is. And since the verses just before it, Daniel 40, Daniel 11.41 through 45, are just before the time of trouble, since Ellen White says that this period of time is clearly revealed in Scripture, therefore these four verses are clearly revealed. But I want to say to you, it doesn't follow. That's not sensible. It's plausible, but not certain. What's certain is that somewhere in Scripture, the last scenes are revealed. Somewhere in Scripture, it's made plain. But there's nothing in that statement that tells you that where it's made plain is in Daniel 11. And to take that statement and use it to say that surely Daniel 11 is presented clearly as crystal and it can be easily comprehended, that is twisting. What someone is asking here is how do we come to these conclusions? And it's by this kind of idea. It's taking a statement. I really don't think Jeff is trying to be dishonest in anything he's doing. I haven't seen any evidence of him trying to mishandle evidence. But it looks like he just sincerely misunderstands quite a number of times. Have you ever read what Elmite says about ministers that eat meat? She indicates we can't have confidence in ministers who've not given up the use of flesh meat. Did you know she says that? It looks like you didn't know that. That's in Council of Diets and Foods. But let me explain it for a minute. She's not saying that the minister, because maybe one of you here is a minister that eats dead animals. I don't know. It could be. She's, she's not saying that if that's you, that you're wicked. She's not saying that you're lost. She's not saying that you're bad or that you don't know or haven't memorized a large part of Scripture. What she's saying is that your lifestyle proves that you don't understand Adventism well enough to be a reliable teacher. That's what it proves. So I can charitably say to a minister who eats meat, I believe that you're a Christian. I can believe that you're sincere. I can believe your heart is right and that you love the Lord and are trying to promote his truth. I can believe that simply and easily but I can't have confidence in you to instruct the flock. It seems you don't really understand things quite well enough. Do you see it's charitable to assume he doesn't understand? Because if I say he does understand, then I'm starting to make a statement about his heart. What I'm trying to say is we can be charitable even with people who are making extreme statements or are going off. We don't have to say anything about their heart, but their extreme positions tell us that they can't be held up as reliable Do you follow? I think you follow what I'm trying to say. (coughs) I think I got through all of them. Yeah, I did get through all. So maybe in the last few minutes I'll just teach you something good about prophecy that isn't controversial at all. Is that fair enough? Is that good? Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Well, there's another question. So I'll take a question and then... But first, Jeremiah 3, because you're already there, right? Jeremiah chapter 3. We're looking at verse 3. Are there questions there? Oh, we're going to learn one thing about Jeremiah 3, 3. And then we'll go from there. Jeremiah 3, 3. It says, Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there has been no latter rain. 
and you have a whore's forehead, you refuse to be ashamed. Don't you know in Revelation it speaks a lot about foreheads? A lot of things are in the forehead in Revelation. Not just the seal of God and the mark of the beast, but New Jerusalem, Babylon the Great. I mean, a lot of things are written in, in the forehead in Revelation. What is the significance or what are the characteristics of a whore's forehead, that Babylonian forehead? She refuses to be ashamed. If you want to end up on the right side of the issues in the end of time, it's going to come down to this. When you find you're wrong, when you learn that you're sinful, when you learn about a goof in your experience, are you willing to be ashamed of your mistake and to turn from it? Those who are in the remnant church but have a whore's forehead will eventually end up in the whore's religion. We want to be sure we get that spiritual issue right. Can you expand on the E.G. White quote in volume 9 regarding buildings that are referring to, and probably it's asking, does that refer to the Twin Towers? I think that's what it's asking. So right after 9-11, you began to find things circling on the Internet. There was one that came around my way that said that in the Quran, in Surah 9, verse 11, it was something about the American Eagle, something... It was entirely fiction, just entirely fiction. Another thing that began to go around is that Ellen White predicted in 9T11 the events of 9-11. I just, can I be very frank and you won't get mad at me? Well, I'll be frank and you can get mad at me, but (laughs) that's stretching things a bit. It doesn't mention anything about the towers on page 11. Nothing. Something starts there, and when you get down into a couple pages, you know, when you get into it, it mentions about towers coming down. But when I read it, it looks to me like something more cataclysmic than what happened on 9-11. If I get to heaven and find out that it was a reference to the two towers coming down by terrorism, I'll be interested in that. But I'm not going to say it happened that the pageation of the nine volume of the testimonies was inspired. Can you expand on the idea of the three-and-one pattern of history repeats? So this is definitely coming from someone who has listened to um, Pippinger's teachings because no one else here would have any clue how to ask a question like that. I can expand on something about that. Um, Does history repeat itself? Yes, it does. Why Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. God requires the things that are in the past. That's exactly it. Um, This idea of history repeating itself, there are three reasons history repeats itself. One reason is that people are so similar. That is, people want power, and they become prideful and arrogant, then they become mean, and then they get thrown down by someone else who has the same characteristics, so that history repeats itself because people are the same from age to age. Also, the devil is very similar from age to age. He, when people are kind of asleep, promotes skepticism. People, demons don't act up and make strange noises when there's a lot of skepticism going on. They keep their quiet and sit and listen to talks just like this. Because if the devil acted up here, 
some people who might be tempted in a year or two to skepticism, that temptation would be just deflated by that little act up. But where people are interested in spiritualism and thinking about spirits and where it's in his interest to promote spiritualism, the devil acts in very different ways. Have any of you ever been in Africa and noticed how differently the devil acts over there? It's, uh, listen, it's not that the devil is different. It's that the people are different. But the devil is the same from age to age. And when the church becomes very pure, the devil loses his temper. I think he loses his temper because it's not ever sensible for him to persecute. Don't you know the devil knows that the blood of martyrs is seed? So when I find the devil persecuting people, it looks to me like he just loses it when he sees himself losing people and losing ground. And I don't think he has much more control than humans do when they become very angry. Also, God is the same yesterday and today. He never changes. So do you see when you take these three facts and put them together that history is bound to repeat itself? When you end up with similar situations, so Ellen White says, for example, that the great reformatory movements from age to age bear a great similarity to each other. And you can find, for example, that when she talks about Daniel 11, yeah, you're there. I mean, you have a Bible. Look at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, and looking at verse 31. Let's start in verse 30. For the ships of Kittim, this is referring to the vandals, shall come against him, that is the papacy. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation. That is that the Roman power, the papacy had a lot of influence, but really the Roman government was still intact as it was. The Roman power came back to fight against the vandals and destroy them, and in fact did destroy them. What's the verse, again? verse 30, Daniel eleven thirty. And then it says he shall have indignation against, what does it say? The holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. That is, here comes the papacy. And who's the papacy working with? It's with the people who are abandoning the Ten Commandments, the idea of them being written in the heart. That is, as the, as the world is turning away from the Ten Commandment law, the papacy is joining with this class of people Verse 31, and arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily. So let's not interpret verse 31, because we just get back to our last talk, right, about the daily and make an argument. So verse 32, and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So during the Middle Ages, were there people who understood the new covenant? There were. Did they do mighty things? They did. You can find evidence of the work of the Valdensians, the Albigensians, Syrian Christians. That Really, they accomplished a great deal while being persecuted. Verse 33, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and captivity and by spoil many days. We know how many. That would be 1,260. Now, when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, and many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Do you get an idea in verse 32 and 34 that the devil knows how to, how to ruin people's hearts? That he doesn't always come to them with fear? That you may be offered promotions or told how smart you are, or how good you look, or whatever the devil can do, he finds very many people he can pull that way. 
that he can't get by fire and sword. If he can't get them by fire and sword, he could corrupt them by flatteries. The truth is that the Waldensians, in the final analysis, and the St. Thomas Christians, both of them, when persecution didn't ruin them, they ended up losing a lot of ground over this issue of the subtleties of Rome. Verse 35, And some of them of understanding shall fall, to try them and to purge and to make them white. I hope what it means is the same kind of fall that was in verse 33, that some of them of understanding would fall to persecution. But it wouldn't shock me if I, when I get to heaven if I find out that it's referring to a different type of fall, the moral fall. Either way, it was to test the church. Now, this is what's interesting. Ellen White refers back to these verses here. And she says that these scenes are going to be repeated in the end of time. Many people have taken this statement by Ellen White and used it to say that prophecies have dual applications. That is, a, a prophecy is fulfilled at two or maybe even three different times. But I'd like to suggest to you that's not what it's talking about at all. You can find these ideas being repeated even if you go right down to verse 44. Just in front of our time, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. That's the same hymn, the papacy. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. That is the persecutions of the Middle Ages are repeated in the end of time. Not meaning the prophecy has a dual interpretation. Verse 31 isn't the same as verse 44. There is a storyline. You can follow it right through time. But we can look back at the Middle Age prophecies to learn something about what's going to happen in the future. Who's the papacy going to be after? That'd be those who know about the covenant. How will the papacy deal with them? That would be by sword and death, but also by flatteries and corruption. Are some going to fall? Some will, but this will be to test us and to try us and to make us right. We can learn from the Middle Ages something about the end of time, but we shouldn't get confused about prophecy. What did it say in the, in the seals in Revelation 6 when these people persecuted in the Middle Ages, when their blood cried out for vengeance? God said to them, rest yet a little while till your brethren that should be killed as you are should be fulfilled. So what I'm saying is that Maybe there are two ways to understand the Ellen White statement. Maybe one way is that every prophecy could be understood as having two or more fulfillments. Maybe the other way is to say that the Middle Age persecution will have its parallel in the end of time. But when we start looking at other statements in other places, they quickly narrow the field until only one of those options is valid. And a lot of these funny ideas, they're not silly ideas, I mean they're wrong ideas, have come from not comparing well to the other statements. By not comparing well, the devil has suggested interpretations that haven't been correct. I took too long to answer that question. So this three-in-one pattern, this is where Jeff Pippinger and I disagree fundamentally. It's on how does prophecy, or excuse me, how does history repeat? I say that history repeats in characteristics, like we just described. Did you follow the description I just gave? The persecution of the Middle Ages, you can learn something about it, about the persecution of the end of time. Jeff believes that, persecution, that prophecy repeats in a much more, what's the word? A much more precise and intentional way, 
almost as if God manipulates the decisions of man so that if you have three enemies at one time, you'll have three enemies the next time and three enemies the third time. If you have three enemies that turn to one or that are against one, that you can literally look for these numerical patterns and, and by noticing them in the past, you can say something even about the future. I think the whole thing is just a misunderstanding about how history repeats itself. What do you think of double applications of the seven trumpets? I think accidentally I just answered that question. Is there principles where double applications of prophecies through Scripture are valid? So I don't have time to prove it here, but I'll tell you what I think about it and leave you to look at my website for my documentation on Matthew 24. I don't even think Matthew 24 is an example of a prophecy that has a dual fulfillment. I think Matthew 24 is a prophecy, is an example of a prophecy that is a prophecy of two different periods of time. There's elements that relate to AD 70, but you and I aren't going to be on our roof. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? And we aren't going to worry about whether the gates in Jerusalem are going to be closed on Sabbath, and uh, we're not going to flee to Judea. And there are parts that relate to the end of time. The gospel is going to go to the entire world. And when you study it, you can do today what the disciples couldn't do. You can differentiate which parts refer to which time. We can lay it out and we can see. But the way the Bible is written is that many times prophecies of ancient events are written in such a way as to be as instructive as possible about the end of time. So when we look at Jerusalem, we can learn lessons there that teach us something about our own day. And we can know that there's going to be a time when it's best for us to flee. Is there a time to warn Jerusalem? There is. Is there a time to get out? There is. And it's that way with the cities today. Today is a time to be warning them, but not to be living in them. There will come a time when it's time to get even further away than that. So the short answer is, I think not. I think as soon as you say that, that prophecies have two or more fulfillments, you really confuse the idea of the storyline. You, you confuse the very first question of where does it fit, and you leave the people, as Ellen White said this morning, without an anchor. As soon as you say it can have more than one fulfillment, you have an anchor for the first one. You can find where it fits in time. For the second one, you're speculating. So we have evangelists on record now going to the end of Daniel 12 and trying to tell us where the 1290 and 1335 fit into the future as literal time. But it's without an anchor. There's no thus saith the Lord. It involves speculation. And as soon as you do it, you've confused. You know what Ellen might say? Those prophecies have their purpose, their place right where they were, where God put them in the fulfillment. Yeah, you understand. If you don't, I don't know how to say it different. There are some who teach that the events of the Millerites will be fulfilled in the last days. These teachers who teach in the 2520, 9-11, and latter reign, would the logical conclusion of their teaching be... I'm gonna, let me just read it to myself and then say it to you. So it's asking, would these teachers feel that they are the anti-type of William Miller... You could write to Jeff Pippinger and ask him that. I've never heard him say it. I don't think I should say that he thinks it if I've never heard him say it. 
But I think that you can very clearly see in his sayings that he does believe that the movement in general is a parallel of the Millerite movement. Yeah, that much is very clear. Would you please touch on the falsehood of Hutef's teachings? I'll say that at BibleDoc.org, that website right there, I have an article on the shepherd's rod. And so I can touch on it briefly, but that will do more than touch on it. It'll deal with it. The touch on it would be that Hutef makes a very large issue out of Ezekiel 9. Are you familiar with Ezekiel 9? Ezekiel 9 is where there's that writer's inkhorn that puts the seal on people. When the sealing's done, then the angels go forth to slaughter old and young, maidens and little children. Everyone gets killed. And in the fifth volume of the testimonies, Ellen White applies Ezekiel 9, for example, to us as a people. She indicates that the church is in trouble and God's judgments are going to, many people are going to be killed by God's judgments that are sown to the Adventists today. Hutef became very excited by that. I don't mean excited like he was very happy. But I'm speaking something about fanaticism here. Fanaticism thrives on excitement. There's something about knowing that it's happening. It's now. It's now. Something about excitement that makes the mind not as sensible. Can't quite... I'm trying to illustrate something by my silly action here. And that is that when... Did you read this in Great Controversy, how Martin Luther dealt with the fanatics from Zwickau? When all of Wittenberg was just taken with their fanaticism, Martin Luther came, he got into the pulpit, and he preached six sermons. He didn't even mention them. He was calm and peaceful and deliberate, and it broke the spell. What I mean is that when the people were calm, they began to think things through. When they began to think things through, they began to see holes and problems and conclusions that they couldn't see before. And there's something about calming down that makes it easy to see. Did that little sound mean at 6 o'clock? Okay. Oh, Hutaf. So Hutef, when people were very excited, and when he was very excited, came to some very strange conclusions about how the church is going to be purified. I have a sermon on audio verse called The Purification of the Church. I think you would enjoy listening to that. Hutef's idea was a very simple one. That is that God will slaughter the unfaithful, then the church will be pure, then it will receive the latter rain and go forth and give the message to the world. When I think it through, the first that I think is, I'm not sure who'd want to join a church that half of them just got slaughtered. <laughs> but if it was truth, we should believe it, even if it doesn't make sense. I mean, if a prophet said that, shouldn't we believe it? Because prophets are wiser than us, and reason is not a safe guide when it comes to interpretation of prophecy. The problem is, the great controversy also talks about Ezekiel 9. It's in the chapter, The Desolation of the Earth. And when she talks about it, she places it very plainly in a timeline. I mean, it comes after the close of human probation. Yes, most Seventh-day Adventists are going to be lost and going to be slaughtered for their wickedness, but it's not going to happen today or tomorrow. It's going to happen after the beginning of the seven last plagues. So it must not have anything to do with preparation for the latter rain, because it's going to come after it's too late for anybody to reform. 
Now, Hutef believed that Ezekiel 9 is fulfilled before the latter rain, and that Ellen White is a true prophet. But Ellen White believed that Ezekiel 9 is fulfilled after the latter rain. When I put those two ideas together, the only conclusion I can come to is that Hutef was a false prophet. Did anyone follow that logic? If Hutef says that his message is from heaven, and his message says that Ellen White is right, and his message disagrees with Ellen White, then it proves that his message can't be from heaven, since it contradicts itself. Yeah, so that would be my short comment on Hutef, and if you want more, there it is. But 16 of you are almost gone, but I only have one more piece of paper. Can you expand on the EG? Oh, I already did that. I think I've gone through all of them. Did someone ask a question that, that I didn't address? Did I drop one? So let me just summarize everything and, and close. If you want a, a little zip file with six files in it that are a critique of Pippinger's teachings, email me. My email address is rememberable. It is canvassing at canvassing.org. That's it. Canvassing at canvassing. Canvassing has two S's in it. Um, at o, at .org. I'll send that to you. In the meantime, Pippinger will not be the last person to do what he's doing. It really won't be a long-term solution for you to learn the particulars about why he's wrong. That's a good short-term solution, but it's not a long-term solution. A long-term solution is for you to study Daniel Revelation for yourself. It's to study the three angels' messages for yourself. It's to give the three angels' messages to the people in your neighborhood. It's to be sharing and teaching, to make yourself a conduit for light. And if you make yourself this conduit, if you're willing to be ashamed of your errors, if you're willing to turn from your sins, then the next time one of these things comes, it won't get you like it gets others. On the other hand, if you refuse to be ashamed, if you refuse to share, if you refuse to study for yourself, then you're going to be taken by this method that has worked so many times. The man teaching uses lots of Ellen White, lots of Bible, advocates reforms, explains obscure passages. No one can prove that he's wrong. He has many followers. No one challenges him. The people that do are wicked and liberal and rebellious. Therefore, he must be right. It isn't so. You can't figure truth out by proxy. We're going to have to study the thing for ourselves. And when we do, we just won't be led astray with these kind of ideas. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would save us from the common nature of delusion. That you would save us from the tricks that have taken so many. And I ask that you'd give us the humility that Edson had to drop an idea. That you would give us the wisdom that Miller had to admit that he had been mistaken. I ask that you would find a way to finish the work in us that you've started. And that you would condescend to use us with a holy message, though we are people that are not qualified to share a holy message. I thank you and ask for these gifts. In the name of Jesus, amen.